Hello. I was just testing you. Amen. We're going to have communion a little bit later on in the message, but I want to share and continue to look at this uh, thought of the discipleship dilemma. Yes, next week we will begin a series on the book of Ephesians, and uh, I'm sure that you will enjoy the journey together as we do that. Ephesians has so much information for us that will help us to live and do all that God has called us to do. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for this time today together, and we ask that you would invade this space right now. Invade our lives, our hearts. We give it all over to you. We're here to worship you. We're here to love you and to love one another. So help us, Lord, to truly be all that you have called us to be. Help us to rediscover what that looks like and what it is. And so I pray, Lord, for for who we are and what you are doing, but also that you would work for us into our community and into our areas and environments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, this is part two, as I said, and I, (coughs) excuse me, I need to, I was really belching out there in the songs and I thought I'm going to hurt my voice. Uh, I want to ask you to have grace today, to exercise grace. Very odd request, beginning with a message. Uh, exercise grace towards me, to exercise grace towards one another. And the reason I ask you to do that is that as, I, as we look at the message today, uh, it would be sad that we would leave sort of finger pointing. It would be sad if we left just, just thinking of what's wrong with someone else rather than looking internally. So I'm going to ask you to do something and to help me with this, to help me preach this. I... I need you to extend grace for the person in front of you, beside you, behind you, in this room, in the other room, and for those who are not even able to be with us today, having holidays or whatever the situation, extend grace. Okay, well, I think we can move forward once I've said that. And I've got my notes here because my iPad is like being a little naughty. And I've just got a funny feeling it doesn't want to behave itself. Today, isn't technology grand? Here we go. Well, last week, quickly, we looked at why the church exists. Its purpose and mission is that of the same that Jesus presented. He said to go and make disciples. And so that is our mission. And it hasn't changed. It has not changed. Sometimes we get confused with our roles and we feel that we're meant to build the church. Jesus didn't say build the church. He said, go make disciples. He said, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so sometimes we want to build the church. He says, you leave, that's my responsibility. Let me work for you in making disciples. And that starts with us and then it covers other areas. I won't recap too much, but to say this, that his last command needs to be our first priority. Seeing God change lives, we heard this before and narrowly mentioned that through me, is a discipleship response. Uh, Growing deeper relationships with Christ and each other is a discipleship response. And when acted upon with expectation of faith, 
prompted by the hope that transforms lives and by a love like Jesus, we will make a difference. And my iPad is being a little annoyed yet, as I said. Well, we said a disciple is what? Someone who knows God or someone, let's bring home, someone who knows Jesus and makes him known. Transformation, as we've heard this morning, some of those words are, are, are circulating around and in different churches and different spheres. Right globally now, God is stirring his church. And this transformation is, can only occur through discipleship that is centred on Jesus. We spoke last week about my heart, my responsibility. And so we're going to unpack this a little bit. Now remember what I said at the start of the message? What did I say? I said grace. Everyone say grace. In the back room, let us hear you say. Okay, thank you. That's a great echo there. Well done. That's it. We looked at the rich young ruler uh, and Jesus challenged him with that one thing you still need to do. So no matter how much we know, how much knowledge we have accumulated, uh, we need to understand that being changed and uh, God is working and leading us through daily encounters with himself. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, he was saying this, that that one thing is your heart. Give me your heart, unreservedly, give me your heart and you've given me your life. And if we're all honest at times, there is that one thing is narrowly reminded us of. And so we're going to move forward into week two. Uh, as you look at the slides there, uh, a believer, I like what Eric Geiger says, is a believer still has plenty of business at the throne of grace. In fact, their business there increases rather than diminishes. Discipleship seeks primarily not to protect people from the world. And sometimes we've conveyed that, that we'll look after us, but discipleship is about growing and becoming all that God has called us to be. And so that's not about protecting people from the world, but empowering believers to overcome the world. Discipleship understands the gospel, the gospel of grace. It is a powerful gospel, as in Romans chapter 1. So today we're going to uncover a little bit more of that journey. This moment in time right now where you and I stand, and it is saying yes to Jesus, whatever it is, Lord, here I am. Send me, use me, let me hear what you are saying. I like what one author says, Billy Hanks said this, I've never seen, I've never met, sorry, a mature Christian, only maturing Christians. So we're on a journey. I haven't arrived. You don't finish Bible college, you don't have study and go, well, I've done now, I've made it, that's it, thank you very much, and go into cruise mode. No, we keep learning, we keep walking. It is a living relationship with Jesus. We're going to look at somebody today. And as I said, we need to extend grace in what we're going to look at. And this person had an understood mess. He understood life. He understood challenges. He understood the consequences of his actions. And this individual, though, I believe, uh, no doubt, is a great example of how we are to understand in the ups and downs of life in our journey as disciples even, 
And we're going to look at someone in the Old Testament, would you believe? And we're going to look at King David. King David was known as what? Someone who was known to love God. He had a heart after God. Even in the book of Acts, as a church was emerging and growing and taking ground and leading as an influence, it is said that David is a man after God's own heart. And we heard before, discipleship is transformation, which is obeying God, obedience. And it says, for he will obey me. The Lord does not look at the things that a man looks at. Man looks at outwards, outward appearances, but the Lord looks at our hearts. So Lord, the Lord is looking at you right now and he sees your heart. He sees my heart. And so we're going to learn something about discipleship and transformation from Psalm 51. We learn about the power of sin. We're going to learn about ourselves and we're going to learn and discover about God's grace. I think discipleship is clearly understanding grace. And I think over the years, sometimes the church, people, believers, we've missed it a little bit. We've, we've, we've missed it and we've made it either uh, legalistic or, we, or we've, we've just haven't extended grace where we need to. In Psalm 51, David gives us a glimpse into the depths of his soul. David confesses his desperate need for God's transforming work in his heart. In the spring when kings, kings would march out to war, David sent Joab and his officers and all of Israel to go and destroy the Amorites, besiege Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 11. And something is about to happen. And while the men were fighting, David was fighting something else. His isolation, but more than his isolation. David was on the balcony instead of the battlefield, yeah? David looked around, King David, and he sees this beautiful woman and he inquires about, who is this? And they say, it's Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, the soldier, one of your soldiers. A great soldier, by the way. They say this, that a person is at their greatest temptation when they are successful or at a time when they're at great weakness. And I've seen it. I've seen leaders that have made really, really poor decisions when they start to think that, wow, look at me, look how good I must be. And that can be a challenge. But the other side of that is when we, oh, woe is me if I'm a man of unclean lips and undone. And that place can be also quite devastating. We're going to find that balance. David had a moment of intimacy with Bathsheba. And in order to protect his reputation... He plans a way around this. But things go from bad to very bad. David meets Uriah three times and he says, first he, he, he says, you know what? Um, you need to go sleep with your wife. You need to come back and just, and, and just hang out with your wife. But Uriah doesn't do that. He's such an honourable man that he sleeps outside the gate with his soldiers and his men. David calls him back, said, well, that didn't work. So David tries again. And try and get him drunk. Maybe a bit too much wine. That will help. But that didn't work. And so David is caught. And so David goes to the place and says, okay, this is what I need to do. I'm going to send him off to the front line, the battle line. 
David was not thinking about anything, and so we know the story, and you know the story, and I'm going to just skip over some of these things. But David's plan uh, sent Uriah out to the battlefield, and his death came about by the enemy, but David was the one who devised the plan. And God saw this, and God was not happy. With David and all the great that he is and all the man that he is, God was not happy. So God sends Nathan, the prophet, to come. And, and Nathan, and to talk to a king is you've got to be very careful because you could just, you know, you, you, you can either walk out or get carried out. You know what I mean? There's only two ways this, this will happen. So Nathan comes up and he talks to David and he just shares a story. This is clever. There's no other way around. He says, this is rich guy and he has so many sheep you can't even count them. He has so much. If he lost two, three thousand, it wouldn't even worry him. He had, had so many. But one night he had some guests come over and he needed to get a meal ready. And down the road there was a neighbour and he was really poor. Really, really poor. And he only had one. And so this rich man took that one off that very poor man, slaughtered it and offered it up to his neighbours. David hears this and it says in, in 2 Samuel 12, he was furious. If I was Nathan, I'd be starting to shake just a little bit right now. because I don't know what's going to happen. Who is this? We're going to take him out. He's done. And Nathan says, you are this man. You are the one. Something amazing happened in that moment. Something powerful happened. Martin Luther wrote of Psalm 51, which is our David after recognising and coming to a place of repentance, says this, that like no other place in the Bible, we see the gravity of sin. And as disciples and followers of God, we too must learn and discern what God is revealing to our hearts every day. In this narrative, we learn how devastating sin is, that there's no way to conquer it in our own goodness or our own ability, and that our hearts have been made for Christ and for Christ alone. So this humbling, repentant psalm, let's have a look at it in Psalm 51 really quickly. Have mercy on me, O God. This is David. Broken. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this, what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Think of that one. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with his hyssop and I will be cleansed. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let, my, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. In verse 10, creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit or heart to sustain me. Anybody heard of Keith Green? Great singer. There's one song, there's a few, but one song that you will remember. I certainly remember is when he, the song created me a clean heart. I can still even hear him singing it in my ears. Creating me a clean heart. This word create describes a breaking, a piercing to fashion and shape and mould. Create is not just, just adding on, but it's almost like breaking something and allowing it to then become all that needs to be. This renew means repair and restore, rejuvenate. This is essential to life. In the mess, the mayhem, and the madness, we can see God. We can see Jesus for who he truly is. Be gracious to me, he says, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, Peshaw. Wash away my guilt, Avon, and cleanse me from my sin. Hataf. Did you notice something that David does not say in this psalm? I don't know if you noticed there's something missing. No, if you, you said, I, I say it. There is not a word in this entire psalm about sex. And not because the Bible is afraid to mention sex. But listen, David, King David did not pray for his spiritual purity. He didn't pray, God, protect me, my eyes. Or that God would uh, give him men to hold, hold him accountable. He does not pray for sexual restraint because ultimately sex is not the issue. His heart is the issue. My heart is the issue. Your heart is the issue. God is most interested in our hearts and this is what we understand this discipleship dilemma to be all about. Jeremiah 17, 9, it won't be on the screen. The heart is deceitful. What? Above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Have you ever been in a moment or an experience and you wonder how you reacted or how that went down and how did it transpire? How did it come to this? Probably a heart somewhere. Probably a heart was just out of shape, just a little for time, we won't go in, into the, to, to the words, but the word, the second Hebrew word used in verse 2 is avon, and it means depravity. Another way of describing it is that it's twisted out of shape. David is saying, God, the problem is with my heart. It was not centred on you. It was twisted to the left or to the right, but it wasn't centred on on you. And this is why Psalm 51 is so powerful indeed. 
we continually need the restoration and cleansing David finds and Jesus offers. Transformed disciples continually repent. We continually pray prayers similar to Psalm 51, being aware of the active and dwelling presence of God. Some will say, well, I prayed once and I gave my life to Jesus and I declared it then and I don't need to apologise or declare anything else because I am all good. And there's something wrong with that. And we clearly know that we don't understand who we are and how easy our hearts can be swayed. Society will sway our hearts. People can sway our hearts. Circumstances can sway our hearts. And I want to be all that God has called me to be. I want the church to be all that God has called it to be. I want you to be all that you are called to be. And we do this by reminding ourselves that we are at times extremely vulnerable. Transformed disciples continually repent. Some will say, but shouldn't we pray Psalm 51 less and less the more we are transformed? Absolutely not. We don't need grace less the longer we are his, but we need it more and more. In serving the Lord 32 years, the grace I had on my first day of recognising and making a decision for Jesus to now, I need more grace than ever before. I need to be aware of his presence aware of my own weakness and some vulnerabilities. I need to be aware of my own heart and how easily it can go astray. What about your heart? We need to be careful of criticism, of gossip, of wanting to pull down to manufacture perceptions over and above reality, to, to not love and to not care. We've got to wonder what sometimes the picture of the church really looks like from the outside. I wonder what our story is, what our narrative is, what people think. And we are human. As I said, we are vulnerable. And we have an opportunity to do all and be all that God has called us to be. One of the biggest things that takes believers out is offence. Jesus said, woe to whom offence comes. Because in that place of offence, our heart, begins, that twistedness begins to go this side or that side and we start to believe and live something that's not true. The sad news is I can't fix me. And the sad news is I can't fix you and you can't fix me and you can't fix you. But the good news is Jesus can. Hallelujah, that is good news. The heart is what matters to God. David is saying, God, the problem is with my heart. When it's not centred on you, I get into trouble. On that rooftop, that dreaded night, David's heart was restless and twisted. He was not satisfied and quenched in God, so he was looking somewhere else 
perhaps for comfort, perhaps he felt alone, perhaps he was tired, perhaps he felt unloved, perhaps he felt abandoned, rejected. There could be a number of things. But we continually need that restoration and cleansing David found. Transformed disciples continually repent. Not focused on our sin. Oh, oh, I think I did something wrong then. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, we can, we can get like that. We get consumed with it. What we're going to learn is how to keep our eyes on Jesus. And when we walk in attuneness, in closeness, when something, as I shared last week, when something's not right, we really know it. We know it. I know when my life is not pleasing God. I know when I've done something or said something. I know and I feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of that. And there's times where things in my past that I've said and done, it comes back. On those moments, I remind myself that Jesus has washed away all my sins. The devil will come back and try and hit me again and say, you're no good and you did this and you hurt that and you did and you said, you said. Who knows, that's true sometimes. We get this bombardment. Yet the closer we walk with him, we realise the depth of his holiness is more than we previously understood. Transformed disciples continually repent. They continually pray prayers similar to Psalm 51. I couldn't tell you in 32 years of Christian living and serving my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ how many times I've prayed Psalm 51 and other Psalms. I can't tell you. Because life happens and stuff happens and it's almost like you walk away, you've got to just debrief and say, what do I need to do with this? How do... What do I need to do? Sorry, Lord. Sorry if I offended you. Sorry if I hurt you. We've got to own what we need to own. Do what we need to do and trust God with what God does best. We get to understand that his grace must be greater than we ever expected. Without a greater understanding of his grace, the increased realisation of sin will only crush us. We heard this, discipleship is transformation, not information. Discipleship is transformation, not behaviour modification. And discipleship is transformation, not partial surrender. Discipleship is a transformed heart, transforming affections in the place Christ radically changes our appetites. A true disciple knows God and is continually being transformed by him. David doesn't respond with blame. He says to God, against you, you alone have I sinned. He doesn't shift the blame to someone else. Noticeably absent in the text are common excuses like, my, my men should have stopped me. The guards should have stopped me. The people, the carers in the, in the palace, they should have stopped me. I cannot help myself. She was bathing on that stinking roof. Who does that? My wife was not where I needed her to be. She, she drove, my, drove my heart. David, 
doesn't offer any of these excuses. He says, you alone have I sinned against. The difference here lies between viewing our relationship with God to be compared to as full surrender or a treaty. In treaty, nations keep their independent sovereignty but trade favours with one another. They barter. They discuss, we've got Australia doing that right now with other nations. But our walk is not about, well, God, you did this, but I need you to do that. If you do that, I'll do this. If you, it's not, not the way of discipleship. He calls for total surrender. No bargaining allowed. And David realises his first need, God's forgiveness, before he can move forward. God assured David that his transforming work on David's heart would result in obedience. And what we learn in the psalm, and we won't read further, it says this, David commits to teach the rebellious his ways. This is what he's praying. David, David's eyes are open. He says that uh, in verse 15, and declare God's praise. I want to declare your praise. Help me to do this. I've realised, oh, he develops a passion for the city to be reconciled to God in verse 18 and 19. So David did not only give his heart, but he also, as his heart opened up, he began to be transformed and started to see what he was really needing to be done, what God was calling him to do. David had a rough life because of this. He had a lot of blood on his hands. He couldn't build the temple. But David was the one saying, I'm in a temple. I'm in this beautiful palace. But the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent. Something's wrong with that picture. David's heart was transformed and so was his life. <coughs> Excuse me. Real faith and real transformation are accompanied by real action. Transformation occurs in the heart and is validated by obedience. I said last week that cheap grace is often referred to as something we bestow upon ourselves. Sometimes to justify ourselves, to make us look okay. Jesus couldn't have been more explicit about this fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He means that you'll love me, you'll do what it means. You'll be, you'll give up everything to know me and follow me. I'm going to get ready for a time of communion right now. I'm going to ask those who are getting ready to prepare if Kristen would like to come up and, and play. All I ask is that emblems are just uh, shared, distributed around, that you just, uh, just don't wait to... Uh, you can open them when the music is playing, but just wait till we, we partake together. In Psalm 16... It reads, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say to the holy people who are in the land, they, the noble ones in whom is also my delight. And to those who run after God, who suffer more and more, I will not pour out liberations of blood to such gods or take up their names or even upon my lips. David didn't even want to mention them. He says, Verse 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You are my security. You are my life. 
D.L. Moody said this, we have to be empty before we can be filled. Only Jesus can satisfy. King David is seeing his future. This Messianic Psalm predicts Christ and it predicts our future with Christ. David says this, Lord, you are my cup. I wonder if David got this from understanding what Exodus chapter 6 talks about. In the Passover, they, used, they had have four cups. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, the cup of praise. Some even say there's the cup, the fifth cup, the cup of suffering that our Lord and Saviour Jesus became. David says, the Lord is my cup and my portion. This is, if I understand this correctly, this Psalm 16 is 10 years after David realised his error of his way. God's promise is paramount. Sin happens when we forget that God is enough. When we want something other than Him. Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers wrote, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. Communion is a reminder of our pledge to Jesus. I want to be in fellowship with Him and fellowship with each other. Transformation and transformational discipleship occurs when people are impressed with the attractiveness of Christ and confronted with the deficiency of lesser gods. We help others and we are reminded of ourselves of how great is our God. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So I have to ask you the question as you are holding these emblems, reminding you of what Jesus has done for us. Reminding the ups and downs of life, the twists and turns, the battles, the temptations, the struggles, the good days and the not so good days. We need to remind ourselves, do we understand what saying yes to Jesus means? Do I understand? May David's response be our response. But not because of David, but because in our heart of hearts, God is speaking. God is whispering. God is wooing. God is calling. God is reaching. God is seeing. God is asking. God is declaring. 
Is there grace in, enough in your life right now? Is grace having its dominion in your life right now? Because it should be. We acknowledge what we've done. But we acknowledge who God is. Louis Cesar or Cesar from Mexico defined the work of transformational discipleship as this, as we believe transformational discipleship is communion. It is relationship. And that's what I ask you right now. 2021, as a church and many churches seem to be drawn and wooing back to the heart of what it's all about to the place that when all this stuff happens, what really matters is that my heart is right. And it's not for someone to come up and point their finger at you and have a conversation and say, your heart's wrong. We're not to do that. We're to get on our knees and humble ourselves before God and say, God, you alone know who I am. Isn't communion really about this discovery? Discovering who I am in light of who Jesus is. He is my Saviour. He is your Saviour. He is my Lord. And He is your Lord. So David is a man after God's own heart. Some of you could be surprised by that after what we've just read. But I believe the biggest difference here, the deal breaker is this, what happens in here? Not what others see, not what others are aware of or perceive, it's what God sees. You don't know what I see, you don't know what I read, you don't know what I do during the week. And I don't know what you see or what you do during the week. My accountability is to God. I'm gonna close on this story and I'm gonna ask you to forgive me. I may be summoned before the elders in the next few moments. I went to Sydney last year for my study. Gave those. But I had a really sore neck and I knew I needed a massage. I needed a massage really quick. Something was out. I was sitting in the class all day and as soon as I got to the motel room, I'm rolling up a towel and I'm rolling on my back and on my neck and I'm, and I'm twisting and I'm thinking, oh, another day of full study sitting in lectures. I can't, Lord, help me. So I looked up all these massage places. You know where I'm going to go with this. This is scary. Forgive me. Grace. I started with grace, end with grace. So I looked at reputable places that would be okay. Trust, Lord, lead me. And I go to this place and I sit there and I say, I just want to massage. And I go in there anyway. She starts massaging me, this lady. And then she says, Do you, can I be your girlfriend? Yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? I said, no, I've got a wife, thank you, and I'm happily married. So she's massaging and then she says, 
I really want to be your girlfriend. And I'm starting to think, oh Lord, what have I done? Oh Jesus, I was starting to shake. I was praying. I was praying, I said, oh Lord, what is this place? Who saw me coming in? Who's gonna see me leaving? I'm starting to think about all this. I'm starting to think about my reputation. I'm here studying the Bible. I've gone to study the Bible and here I am in this place that is not where I should be. So I'm praying. Since I want to be your girlfriend, I said, I'm sure you've got plenty of boyfriends. I'm not your boyfriend. So I got out of there pretty quickly. In fact, I was so insulted by my not accepting the offers that, that, that I think it must be a family business, I don't know, that the door was slammed as I left. I was about to say good riddance. I was about to ring the police up actually because this, this place was shonky. So I get out there and I get on the phone like to Gabe. Gabe. So nobody knew what happened or what could have happened. Nothing happened. I ring Gabe and I say, <laughs> I say, Gabe, I just went, didn't I? I ring you. Gabe's go, what have you done? I said, oh, I went to this place to get a massage. You know, I've been in so much pain. And, this. and she says, yeah, you silly duffer, you know. Straight after I, I walked away from ringing Gabe, I meet a, one of my fellow students and I'm just almost shaking, thinking this could have just undone me. I was terrified. How'd I get there? I'm gonna be wiser next time. I'll never go to that place again, of course. But I'm sharing because sometimes we don't see, and you don't see what goes on in my life, and I don't see what decisions you make in yours, but God sees. And though we may be held in a sense of accountability and have accountability with each other, ultimately I'm sitting there and, and my accountability was to God. I said, God, what has gone wrong right now? Why am I here? I've got to get out. And all I could think about was ringing Gabe. That's all I could think about. As I said, I ran out of that place. Oh, I don't think I was worried about my neck after that. <laughs> I was just shaking like a leaf. I was saying to someone the other day that integrity is so important. You know, Billy Graham, every time he travelled, every motel he went to, because he was set up, people would set prostitutes into his rooms. That he would have minders that would go into the rooms and check every room and every closet under the kitchen sink everywhere before he would go and stay in that room. And no one can find, as we know, no one has found accusation against him. Because like Billy Graham, my heart, my responsibility, God knows, God sees. I was thinking about the story. Usually I check with Gabe stories and I didn't. Sorry, Gabe. I was a duffer. 
But stuff happens, doesn't it? And no one maybe would have ever, never known what could have happened on that afternoon except me and God. That's why it matters what we do. It matters what we say. It matters that my relationship with God and the grace that God had for me that I was close enough to hear. I was close enough to say no. I was close enough to say no way. By God's grace. So I close with this. Who knows what happens in life and the challenges that we have? Who knows what temptations and troubles prevail? We're reminded that discipleship is intimacy with Jesus. Discipleship is relationship with Jesus. And I hold these emblems as you do for those who haven't partaked yet because I know the band need to do what they need to do. These remind me of my heart is pledged to Jesus. My heart belongs to Jesus. My life is pledged to Jesus. My my decisions are pledged to Jesus. Whatever it will be, whatever it will cost, Lord, help me to follow you faithfully all the days of my life. Because God doesn't look at this and the weird shirt that I have on today. God's looking at my heart. What you hold right now, this is it. Jesus loved us so much that David foresaw that Jesus is his cup. You are my cup. You are my provision. You are my substance. You are my bread. You are my life. So in your own time right now, I encourage you to pause just for a moment and then partake. We're going to sing a song.